All right, let's go ahead and grab our Bibles. So, um, open up to 1 Peter. So one of the things that we set forth to do nine years ago when we started was root everything we do in God's Word, that we would preach God's Word, we would sing God's Word, we would try to the best of our ability to make our decisions based on God's Word, even at the expense of popularity or at the expense of what people may say or believe. That was our goal. And I think we would pretty much all agree that here we are nine years later, thankful that God has kept us on that journey. This morning, we are starting a new series. Um, it would have kind of been, I guess, a little anticlimactic if I would have preached a standalone sermon this morning about, you know, what God's done here over the nine years. So I decided, hey, you know, we, this is what we do. We preach through books of the Bible, so we're starting a new one today. And we're going to be in 1 Peter. Um, the book of 1 Peter is, as one of the commentaries I was reading, really is a pastor's delight. Um, there's tough, there are tough portions to preach through, um, but it is a joy to see Peter's heart towards the church. And as we begin to look in 1 Peter, there's kind of the bedrock thing that we have to think about is that there's this truth that kind of encompasses all of us, and it's that that we're all sinners. Paul writes in Romans 3, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's no one at all, especially no one here, that gets away from that truth. That truth speaks to every person who has ever lived, except for one, and that was Jesus. But in Genesis chapter 3, there's this encounter with Adam, Eve, and Satan disguised as the serpent. And that encounter and Adam and Eve's fall leaves mankind completely hopeless. We have been separated from God because of sin. Uh, we have no hope to get back to God because there's nothing good within us. But then in chapter, in chapter 3, verse 15, we see this. God speaking to Satan as the serpent says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. God makes a promise right there that although we have been separated from him because of sin, sin would not win. That God would send a Messiah, that God would send a Savior, and that he, although his heel may be bruised, he would crush the head of the serpent, defeating sin and death forever. And the reality is, is that because of sin, we're all bad. There is none good, no, not one. There is no one here who can offer up righteousness good enough. Isaiah says that all of our righteousness is as filthy rags. But because of the work of Christ, and because of the promise of God in Genesis 3.15, we don't have to end bad. We don't have to stay there. One of the examples that we see in Scripture, in the New Testament of this, is Peter. 
You've heard me over the last years make jokes about how I can resonate with Peter some. Peter has this ability to speak way too quickly, to be a little hot-headed, to act a little foolish. Peter made a lot of mistakes. You see through the gospel the mistakes that Peter made. Even to the point of denying Jesus at one of the most crucial moments of history. But Peter found redemption in Christ. And he would eventually give his life so that others would find redemption as well. And not only giving his life in service, but he literally gave his life. History tells us that Peter was crucified much like Christ, but he said he was unworthy to be crucified like his Lord, so he was crucified upside down. That speaks to a lot of what Peter became. So Peter, writing this letter to the church, says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. First off, you need to know when he says that he is an apostle, that is a specific gift given only to a handful of people. There are a lot of people today that claim to be apostles. They're not. The gift of apostleship still carries on for those who love the Lord, who serve God's people. But the, the title of an apostle was given only to a handful of Peter, Peter, people, and Peter was one of those. People who were called specifically by Christ to serve His church. He's stating his authority as he is writing this letter by saying he's an apostle. But where it really gets interesting to me is he says he's an apostle of Jesus Christ. In the original languages, when he says of Jesus Christ, it's kind of a possessive term, meaning that he belongs not to himself, but he belongs to Jesus. That he has been set apart by Jesus, that he has surrendered himself completely to Jesus, and he has been commissioned by Jesus to carry this news to the ends of the earth. And what a testimony that the one who would deny Jesus three times at the most pivotal moment in history would be the same one that God would use to preach the sermon at Pentecost to start really what would become the Christian church. And so Peter writing as one who has been redeemed is writing to Christians who have been dispersed, scattered, because of persecution, he says, as he goes on, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. He writes to them to encourage them. He wants to remind them that although they are sojourners and exiles, that they have been scattered, that it was because of the foreknowledge of God that they had been scattered and that they've been sanctified with the Spirit of God and they've been set apart for obedience to Jesus in taking the good news to the ends of the earth. So in, in short, what he's doing is saying, you are dispersed, you have been scattered because of evil happenings, but you've been scattered according to the foreknowledge of God so that you could be set apart in all of these areas to begin to take the gospel to those places. 
And he wants them to be encouraged that even though they have been set apart in that way, that they still remain God's people and that they've been born again to a living hope. What I want us to keep in the forefront of our mind this morning as we work through this first part of 1 Peter chapter 1 is that those who trust in Jesus for salvation are saved from sin, they are filled with joy, and they are given an everlasting hope. Let's pray together. Father, once again, we come before you now in this time where we open your word, trusting that as we read your word, it will be read and heard and received through the work of your Holy Spirit. God, would you do in this time what only you can do? To convict our souls of unrepented sin and to turn to you the only hope of salvation that we have. God, we rejoice in the work that you have done and we praise you for the gift of your word. So now may your word be lifted up as it speaks to the truth and the glories of who you are. And would you use this now to work in the hearts and the lives of those who are here this morning. To some, they need to hear the gospel of Christ so that their lives could be radically changed and saved. To some, we need to be encouraged by the truth that Jesus and Jesus alone saves. And when we are found in him, we are set apart to a living hope. So God, would you speak through the work of your Holy Spirit, through the reading and the preaching of your word in power so that our lives are radically transformed and set apart as obedient children for the good of your name? Would you bless this time? Bless the reading of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. He begins with this truth that we have been born again. Peter's message starts by laying the foundation of our hope. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It's God's work that saves. And it's much easier for us to be hopeful when we understand the reason for our hope. It wouldn't make a lot of sense for Peter to write to people who have had a lot of hope pulled from them if he didn't remind them of their foundation for hope. Their hope was not where they lived. Their hope was not in their station. Their hope was not in their jobs. Their hope was not in any of those things. Their hope was completely in Jesus. So he says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because it's according to his great mercy that he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Again, Genesis 3.15 offered the promise that God would send a Savior, that He would send a Messiah, and that Savior, that Messiah, would come and He would take on the sin of His people. 
He would bear that on himself. And in so doing, and in his death on the cross, he would bear the wrath of God, the righteous requirement. And he would bear the just punishment of God meant for our sins so that we, you and I, the people who would trust in his son, would escape or could escape sin's grip. The Savior is Jesus. And he says, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of that promised Savior, Jesus Christ, from the dead. Jesus is the only one truly righteous. And he is the only one that can save. And his gift of salvation is this gracious and merciful act. Because the truth of the matter is, is we cannot save ourselves. You know, we want to balk and we want to buck at the truth that salvation is a work of God and God alone. But the reality is, is we should not balk at that. We should not be angry at that. We should rejoice in that because there is absolutely no way that we, you and I, can save ourselves. Even though the the popular message that is dubbed gospel nowadays, says that we can live a good life and we can achieve all of these things and we can get this approval from God by doing good works or checking off certain boxes. That's a lie. Again, Isaiah says that all of our righteousness is just filthy rags. Paul also reminds in Romans 5, if you want to flip there, we're, hold your finger in First Peter, but we're going to spend some time in Romans 5 and 6 as we kind of work through today as well. So if you want to keep your finger kind of there, you won't have to refine it each time. I'm not going to read it all, but we're going to read a lot of it, but in parts. Romans chapter 5, Paul writing to the church in Rome, starting in verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ Died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But, verse 8, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Remember, Paul is writing to Christians in Rome. These are people who have already believed and trusted in the gospel of Jesus. These are people who, as we would term, are saved. And he is reminding them that their salvation was accomplished through Jesus' death before you and I were ever even born. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What that tells us is that God knew you, God knew me long before we ever existed. He knew the the horrible nature of our heart, the depravity of our nature. And yet, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God didn't send his son to the cross to die for good people. Jesus went to the cross to die for dead people. And in his death, he defeats death and hell forever, providing for us this great hope. And those who trust in Jesus are born again to a living hope. Again, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope. It is God's work that brings us hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 
And he goes on, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So not only does our salvation come through the work of Christ, and it's accomplished only through the work of Christ, but it's also guarded, it's kept. It's an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. And check this out. Not only is it guarded, and not only is it imperishable, but it's kept by God's power. Why? Through faith for salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Jesus' gift of salvation, because it is completely His work, not ours, is an inheritance that is under in no circumstance can be taken away. The reality is is that when we trust Jesus, we are made new. The old is gone. The new has come. The old has passed away. We have been set apart completely and radically changed. We're no longer held captive by sin and shame. We're no longer bound by those shackles. We are covered by the blood of Jesus and we have been made righteous in God's eyes. For while we were still weak, At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died. In Jesus' death, he takes on all of the sin of all of his people for all of time. And at the moment that God turns his back on his son because he took our sin Jesus cries out, Ali, Ali, or my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And God destroys his one and only son because of the sin that he is bearing. And in his death, he destroys that sin and death forever. It's what theologians call the great exchange. Because not only does he take all of the sin of his, for all of his people for all of time on himself and sacrifice it at the hands of God, but he replaces that sin with his righteousness. We are covered by his blood. We have been made righteous through his death. And as we see at the end of verse 5, we will see it all come to pass on the last day. Again, the reality is, is every single one of us here today will stand before God. And we will give an account for our lives. And there's only going to be two waves of people. Those whom God says, enter in my good and faithful servant. That is those who truly trust in Jesus, who have truly surrendered their lives to him. Who know Beyond a shadow of a doubt, they have been covered by the blood of Christ. And then there's going to be the other wave of people, which is those that are going to hear, depart from me, you worker of evil, I never knew you. And in that category is a lot of different people. People who absolutely reject God and deny God every, with every ounce of their being. But that's also going to include a lot of people who thought they were Christians because they thought they did enough. Salvation's not about work. Salvation's not about us doing enough so that God would look at us and approve. 
Salvation is about trusting in Jesus because he is the only one that can save us from our sins. We will see the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls on the last day. Some of us here today are not in the category that says enter in, my good and faithful servant. We've bought into the lie of the southernized gospel that we can just live a good life and refrain from doing most bad things. That we can replace the true God with a bunch of false gods, but if we go to church occasionally and we we say we're okay with Jesus, then he's okay with us. Maybe we've even walked an aisle and said a prayer and been dunked. If our heart is not truly changed by the work of Christ, we don't know him and he knows not us. So if you're trying to just live a good life and hope that it's all going to work out in the end, I want to help you by letting you know that it doesn't work that way. The only way to be redeemed is through the blood of Christ. And for those who trust in Jesus, we have been born again to a living hope. And for those who trust in Jesus, who are born again to a living hope, we can rejoice always. Verse 6. In this you rejoice. The work of Christ that saves us from sin. The mercy given to us through the Son of God. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that... The test of genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Because of God's gracious gift of salvation, the people of God rejoice. And I know not everybody here is dealing with the best situations in life. There are some of you here who are just absolutely broken right now. And you're trying to hold on to the Lord with everything you have. The truth that I want you to hear today is that we are still to rejoice. We are still to rejoice in salvation that is given from God. That doesn't mean we're going to be happy all the time. But we have a joy that surpasses all understanding. We have a joy that has been given us through the work of Christ. We just spent an entire month looking at uncommon joy, what it means to have an uncommon joy. An uncommon joy is found in Christ. So that even during trials, even through the deepest and darkest moments of our lives, we have hope that those things are only temporary, that they only last, as he says, a little while. Brief, momentary afflictions in light of eternity. And I know the weight of some of that just wants to completely crush us. The weight of a bad diagnosis, the weight of a lost job or tensions with family. Whatever it be, you can fill in the blank. Those things we feel like are going to absolutely crush us. 
and it seems like you can't get one foot in front of the other, like you're just walking in quicksand. But if you trust in Jesus, if you surrender your life to Him, as Peter is encouraging us to do, look at those trials through the lens of eternity. We may be here for 60, 70, 80, 90 years. And in our mind, that seems like a very long time. But in light of eternity, that's just a blip. And I want you to be encouraged that even as you may face those afflictions, and even though you may face those trials, the word of, you're not alone. Because the word of God tells us that the people of God are going to face storms. But the good news is that God is sovereign and He is leading us. Yes, He is even leading us into trials. Why? Verse 9. Check that. For, yeah, verse, no. Verse 7. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Not only does God allow us to go through trials, sometimes He sends us through trials so that we can be refined by the fire. Because oftentimes it's through these trials that the people of God learn to lean into Christ. We learn to lean into God. We learn to trust God with our lives completely and understand what Paul writes in Romans 8, that he is truly working all things together for our good. He is preparing us, folks, as a bride adorned for her husband to be presented on the final day where his children will hear, well done. And so don't look at your trials and be crippled by them. Face your trials by leaning into the Savior. And know that God's greatest concern for us is not our happiness, but our holiness. God doesn't care if we're happy. God wants us to be holy. And sometimes being holy is the hard thing to do. Sometimes pursuing holiness is the most Difficult task before us, but as we see, it will result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You're not here by accident. Though you may have been born accidentally, conceived accidentally, your life is not an accident. Your life has a purpose. God put you on this earth for a reason. And for those who trust in God, we have been given salvation for a purpose. Why? Back to verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And so in this you rejoice. Even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, 
that perishes though it is tested by fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now again, why would Peter start the way he does? He lays the foundation that our salvation, that our life is founded on Christ and His work so that we understand that because it's His work, He is guarding us. And even though we're going to face trials, we can hold fast knowing that He never lets us go. So then we begin to understand that the purpose of our life, our salvation, and the trials we go through teach us as God's people to rely completely on Him. Not on our talents, not on our abilities, or our intelligence, or our careers, or our families, or our loves for sports, or whatever whatever the case may be. God will not fail. And as we begin to rely completely on Jesus, we see clearly improving his love for us, improving his goodness to us, improving his faithfulness. And in that we rejoice. Verse 8, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. We have been born again to a living hope. And that doesn't mean life is going to be easy. We will face many, many trying days. But we are being guarded through faith for salvation because of the work of Christ. Through his son Jesus. And as he guards us, he is preparing us and leading us into various trials in which he is refining us, preparing us for the last day. As a bride adorned for her husband, the perfect, glorious, Bridegroom, Jesus. And as we rest in him, and as we rejoice in him, God is glorified. And in God receiving glory, that's where we find joy. It doesn't seem right to talk about trials and rejoicing together. It makes no sense except through the lens of Jesus. It makes no sense to be able to rejoice through trials unless we realize what we are pressing forward towards. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. When the glory of God becomes my life's complete aim that's when I find the greatest joy in life we try to find joy in so many false things 
our husbands, our wives, our children. We want our kids to be happy, right? We want, we want to serve our kids. We want to do this activity and that activity, and we want to you know, be involved in this, and, and we want to, to find happiness and, and joy in our jobs. So we work really hard, and we, we, we slave over our work to try to be the best we can be. And, and we're not doing it for God's glory, really, at that point. We're doing it to find meaning and to find purpose. But, but at the end of the day, the only place we find true joy and true lasting joy is in Christ and Christ alone. And so the world would tell us by serving God that we are sacrificing far too much and we're not going to find joy by sacrificing all of the things that everybody else can achieve or attain. But the reality is, is the world has it completely backwards because as we're sacrificing those things and as we're giving those things up, that's where we find true and lasting joy. In serving the God who gave up more than we could ever think or imagine. And I want to tell you that while it may seem rough, the path may be difficult and may be full of pain. The people of God look forward in hope to the last day, the consummation of our faith. Verse 9, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. The reality is that we've been born again to a living hope. And so we rejoice always knowing that in the end, it will all be worth it. And I might not have the greatest things here. You might not get that next job that's going to give you a fat check so you can enjoy the finer things of life. But in the end, it will all be worth it if you lay yourselves at the altar of Christ and you say, do with me what you would have me do. And the result, subsequent glories. See, the salvation of God's people was long foretold by him. And it was promised throughout the Old Testament. And God's promise was made manifest in Jesus Christ, his son, the Messiah. His coming, his ministry, his life, his suffering, his death, his resurrection were all fulfillment of God's promises. And in his sacrifice, he gives life, the one for the many. I told you to hold your finger in Romans 5. Go back there. I told you to do it, and I didn't do it. My hands weren't moving too much at all. Romans 5. Skip down to verse. Tell you what, let's read 6 through 8 again. I'm not going to read the whole thing. We're just going skip, to skip through. going to read most. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 12, therefore, Just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all had sinned. Verse 13, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. But 
but. The free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more had the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man. Jesus Christ abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses, yep, following many trespasses brought justification. I skipped a whole line, didn't I? Let's go back to verse 16. Hold your hand still. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man much more, will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in the life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Listen to this. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. The death and the sacrifice of Jesus, the Son of God, gives life to many. And salvation is completely and it's graciously an act of God. Why? Subsequent glories. Look at verse 10 of 1 Peter, chapter 1. Concerning this salvation... The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you and the things that have now been announced through you, to you through those who preach the good news. To you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things to which angels long to look. The truth is, is that those who trust in Jesus are reconciled to God by Jesus. God fulfilled his promise and because of God fulfilling his promise, those who trust in the Son receive grace upon grace. Concerning this salvation, the prophets prophesied about grace that was to be yours, searched and inquired carefully. Inquiring what person or time or spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. But it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. And the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. God fulfilled his promise in sending a son. And the son accomplished redemption for his people through his death. And we receive grace upon grace. And in receiving that grace, we have been given life and we have been given hope everlasting. 
so much that it says into, these are the things into which angels long to work. It means they are eagerly waiting. They're waiting in the presence of God to see the consummation of God's work, to see the final fulfillment of God's redemptive plans unfold. Could you imagine the rejoicing that is going to take place on the last day with the angels and the saints whom God brings home? Seeing that all of history was pointing to one moment. And God's people who had trusted in Him, now in the presence of Him, along with the angels, rejoice and rejoice and rejoice. The beginning of Genesis 3 left mankind completely hopeless. But then in verse 15, God promises hope. He promises a Savior. He promises a Messiah. A hero who would come to destroy Satan, who would destroy death and sin forever and reconcile his people to himself. And the news of the gospel is that those who believe in Jesus and they confess in Jesus, that they will be born again to a living hope. That is to believe that Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah, who would suffer the greatest trial that anyone could ever imagine in order to save His people from their sin. And I don't want to downplay the suffering that you and I face in this life, but the suffering that Christ bore for us gives us hope. Because it's not the physical nature of Christ's suffering that gives us life. I know, I know we like to spin that a lot. You know, it wasn't the nails. It wasn't the crown of thorns or the pain of being whipped nearly to death, lashed nearly to death to where his skin is just, mute, his body's just mutilated. It wasn't any of that that brings us salvation. What brings us salvation and what is truly the suffering of Jesus is that on the cross, he took all the sin of all of his people for all of eternity. And in that, he bore the wrath that was due for every one of our sins. God is holy, and God is righteous, and God is just. Sin couldn't go unpunished. But by the grace and the mercy of God, instead of punishing his people, he punishes his son. And for those who believe and confess in Jesus, we have been born again. We are born again to a living hope. And this living hope implies that we are not just simply saved for ourselves, but we are saved and called to serve a greater purpose. We are saved and set apart as ministers of the gospel. For the last time, we go back to Romans. This time, chapter 6. If you hadn't figured it out, these texts are kind of parallel to one another. Chapter 6, verse 1, Paul writing to the Christians in Rome. 
So remember what happened in five. Right? Salvation is coming just as condemnation came through one man. Salvation is coming through one Jesus Christ. And he starts in verse 20. He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Because we know that Christ being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Verse 10. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. We are created and we are saved for God's purposes and God's glory. We have been born again to a living hope. And so I want to ask you this morning, do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe in this news that we have put before you this morning? Have you surrendered your life to him? Not given like parts of your life, but have you given all of your life to Him? Have you asked God, knowing and confessing the sin that is within you, have you asked God to save you? And in confessing your sin and, and trusting in Jesus, have you been baptized as a public declaration of your faith in Him? Romans 6 is one of the clearest evidences that we should be baptized to Show the world that we are no longer who we once were. We are dead to sin and alive to Christ so that we may walk in newness of life. Just know that even though you may face trials of various kinds, we are all continuing on because of the great mercy that has been given through the living hope of Christ Jesus, our Lord. And there is no one, there is no thing that can take that away from us. When we trust in Jesus, we are guarded until the day of Jesus Christ. Our lives are radically changed. We're no longer the same. Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who gave himself for me. 
God turned Paul from terrorist to missionary. God turned Peter from a lot of things to a preacher. The work of Jesus and the work of Jesus alone can radically change you. And while following him and pursuing him will bring many bumps in the road, as Bunyan writes in Pilgrim's Progress, see yonder wicked gate, run. Don't turn to the right or to the left. Pursue the narrow way. Pursue Jesus with everything you have. Until the last day. Let's pray. Our Father, will you Make much of your word today. Will you save those who have turned from you? Will you save those who have never trusted you? Will you tear down the walls of pride and shame so that we can confess our lips that Jesus is Lord so that they can believe in their heart that you God raised him from the dead and ensure them that when they do that they will be saved God will you work here today through the work and the power of your Holy Spirit And God, for those who are here that have trusted in you. Whose life seems to be going great. Will you continue to work in their hearts to press on and press on. Running towards yonder wicked gate. And Father, for those who are here who do trust you for salvation, who have given their lives to you, who call themselves children of God, who may be going through the most tumultuous times of their life, remind them that they're standing on the rock that will not and cannot be moved. To find peace and hope and joy in you and you alone. Will you bless this time? And work according to your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.